once I hit a million dollars, I started realizing, oh my gosh, me being 27 years old and looking at the white hairs on my head and even a little bit of balding, I'm thinking maybe I can slow down my path a little bit and my investments should be able to continue to grow. I was thinking maybe I can just let off the accelerator a bit because if I retire at 45, but I'm extremely exhausted, then it's not worth it anymore. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast 231 here. Jace, what's going on? How are you doing? Doing great, man. Just uh, getting ready for spring here. What about you? Yeah, doing great as well. We just we were just talking a little before the show. We saw an article that is titled, let's see here, this is on Yahoo Finance. Florida becomes the 11th state to guarantee personal finance course to high schoolers. So it says it was signed in law today. Florida high school students will now be guaranteed to complete a personal finance course prior to crossing the graduation stage. Starting in 2023, so next year, all Florida high schoolers will complete a one-semester course that teaches them how to manage a bank account, file a tax return, and build long-term wealth through investing. Florida has now become the 11th and largest state to guarantee a personal finance course to all high school students entering grade nine. So I don't know why they're doing, what is that, sophomore year, right? Or freshman year high school? Yeah. So I'd prefer it to be junior or senior, but whatever, it's a start, right? That's pretty good news. Yeah, no, I think it's it's a great deal. You know, you think about all these things that at some point most Americans and probably even most people in the world encounter, whether it's filing tax return, buying a house, coming across either credit card or debt or how to manage different things. And quite frankly, we don't really have a curriculum, at least definitely not when I was in school, that was required to learn those things. Yet everyone in you know North America has got to file a tax return every year. <laughs> Most of us are going to go through the process of buying a home or renting a place one, you know, at some point in our life or multiple times. And, you know, same thing with insurances and all these different things that that are are of value to just kind of, you know, live life. And instead, we tend to spend time on other subjects and and whatnot that may not be applicable. So I think some of these states that are in Florida being the most recent one that are are, are putting this as part of their curriculum, I think it's a great move. It's a great start. And and hopefully it'll kind of uplift, you know, the the population as a whole for that state. And hopefully other states will, will follow suit. Yeah, seems like we're getting there. One, yeah, 11, 11 out of fifty-five states, so twenty percent. We're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, so, quick recap: last week we had Wade and Natalie. He owned a small business. Actually, experienced a bankruptcy as well. So, we talked about his experience working through that, then growing up the small business, then selling that business to go on a sailing trip uh, with his wife and four kids. So, net worth of one point eight. Really interesting and unique uh, perspective from him, and and some great advice overall on enjoying life at different stages of the journey. This week, we have Jay, net worth of a million, works in cybersecurity and drives a Maserati. So another fun interview with Jay this week. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Thanks for continuing to listen. And without delay, let's get right into the episode with Jay. Jay, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for having me, Jay. I run the Instagram page, Jay Millennial. On this, I post a lot of the personal finance information, my journey to a millionaire by the age of 30, 
but I work in cybersecurity. I invest in real estate properties as well as index funds. And using my high savings rate for my cybersecurity job, I funnel as much as possible into these index funds in real estate. And that's what's made me a millionaire. As of today, I drive my dream car and I'm living a life that I'm really happy living, even though I don't spend as much as the average person, I guess. Yeah, no, I want to I want to get into all this because it's it's really remarkable what you've been able to to do in such a short amount of time. But first, I, w- I want you to tell our listeners how you even decided to come on our show in the first place. Sure, absolutely. I think it was funny because I actually posted a question on my Instagram page asking, "What podcast would you like me to be on?" Everyone's saying like, "Oh, Graham Stephan show," and then. I saw this Millionaires Unveiled, and I said, that sounds interesting. And actually, 25 people over the course of the questions said, go on Millionaires Unveiled. You should do it, Jay. And then I put a poll up, Graham Stephan Show versus Millionaires Unveiled versus a couple others. And over 100 people apparently responded Millionaires Unveiled. So I was surprised to see so many listeners of Millionaires Unveiled listen to a couple of those different podcasts and shows, and here I am. That's awesome, man. Appreciate you sharing that. So, net worth is a million dollars or just over, right? Correct. Yes. So, let's break that down. What is what is the allocation of the million? Sure, absolutely. So, I posted this back in February, right, when I reached a million 37. That would be around 38% in real estate, so $391,000 there, $66,000 in cash, so 6%, and brokerage account $289,000, so 28% there. Uh, I have an HSA, $18,000 in that, and then retirement 401k IRA, that's $258,000. And then $4,000 in crypto and $10,000 in cars between assets and liabilities. So, of course, this allocation does factor in the asset minus the liability. Totally. So, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the car for a second. You're driving your dream car, which is what? Sure. I'm driving a Maserati Ghibli. Okay. And when did you buy that? I bought it in May last year, and I was at around 700000 net worth. The market had tanked quite a bit, and I decided it was the best time to get my dream car. <laughs> okay. So, walk us through that because it's, 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 I think it's a little bit, uh, you know, counterintuitive in a lot of ways, right? Like, you, you got to a certain level, and then you decided to get your dream car, whereas a lot of times, I think just in general, personal finance and millionaires and, and a lot of people that we have on the show, they prefer or they, you know, grind away or don't think, one, they can afford a car like that, or two, they don't do it until they're way, way, way farther away. But you bought it earlier, and now you get to have that experience, which I'm, I'm assuming since you did buy it is, is important to you to, to be able to have that experience at, at such a younger age. Walk us through that decision. Sure, absolutely. So I've been dreaming about Maseratis for over 10 years, and I can date this all the way back to late middle school and early high school. And cars are a big passion of mine. They've been a big part of my life. And I actually wanted to buy the car much earlier, but people around me stopped me. Like my dad say, said, don't buy it with your salary at 65000 That's freaking ridiculous. And that's when the car literally just came out back in 2014. But I was personally thinking, if I can make that a goal, and if I can have my side hustles pay for that car, why not? So I made it a goal to be able to cover the monthly payment three times over with one of my side hustles before I went out and purchased the car. So that was a big factor in it. Originally, I thought, you know what, I'm going to buy the car once I hit 
$120,000 in income and if the car is worth $30,000. But over time, along with depreciation and everything, I ended up growing my YouTube channel to a point where it could pay for that monthly payment three times every single month. So when it hit that point, I said, you know what, I got to stop. I, I can stop right here. I think this is perfect. My side hustles are paying for it. If my side hustle goes down, my main job can pay for it. My rentals can pay for it. So at that point, I realized this is the time that I can get it. And looking at it, looking at like auto trader every single day, I realized this is the time. The depreciation curve is not going to go that much further down and it's perfect. Everything aligned. So did you buy a used one then? Correct. Yes, I bought a used one. It's a 2014 model and I paid 19000 for it. Oh, wow. So you got a pretty, I mean, that's that's relatively not cheap, but in comparatively to, you know, buying any other car, let's just say, I mean, that's not right. crazy expensive, in the right? Sense of it, when people, absolutely, like when people tell me, oh, you got a Maserati, people automatically assume it's probably worth over $50,000 or even sixty or $80,000. And once they hear that I spent 19000 fully serviced and everything, their minds just explode. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can see why, right? Like a lot of times I think sometimes we think of these supercars or, or, or luxury vehicles as being so expensive. But in your case, hey, you're a millionaire, but you still went and bought a used one and it cost you 20 grand to live out that dream. That's not really that expensive, right? That is correct. Yes. And the way I think about it is it's such a small part of my net worth now that if it were to depreciate any further, well, one, there's still going to be some value in it. I think, you know, even if I sell it for 10000 in five years, I'd still be happy because I feel like I'd get 9000 worth of value out of it. Totally. And I think you bring up a good point, right? Like looking at things, you know, whether it be consumer goods or or even experiences that we pay for, for the value that they give you or the memory that they give you. And in your mind, even if that went to, you know, three grand or five grand, you've got the value out of it no matter what over the, you know, these several years that you'll drive it, Correct. Right. And that's what I think about also is depreciation and the value I'd get. Like if I spent 80000 on the same car and over for five years, I wouldn't think that I would get, you know, $40,000 worth of it, especially with the depreciation being that much. So here it makes more sense that way. That's how I think about it. Totally. So let's get back to the allocation here a little bit. You've got what about five hundred, six hundred thousand 600000 in the market. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So around 560 when I checked this morning. Okay. And is that mainly invested in index funds? Yes. So my 401k IRA that's primarily in VSMPX, which is a Vanguard total stock market fund. I do have some QQQ in my IRA. And then in my brokerage, people know I'm very tech heavy. So I split it 50% down the line between QQQ and um, VTI. Well, actually, you know, maybe 20000 or so in ARKK as well in the brokerage. So no individual stocks? Well, <laughs> with the recent pandemic, I've invested in Delta, United, and Palantir. Okay. So those would probably be just around $30,000 worth in that. So it's still a small part of the brokerage even. Now, was that something that you just did taking advantage of what the market did at the beginning of the pandemic? Or is that a new strategy that you're going to kind of try to build out as, as the pandemic you know, subsides and the market continues to rebound? No, I feel like this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity here. Looking at where the stocks were between those cruise lines and the airlines, I felt like there was a lot of room to recover after seeing them down over 60 or 70%. It's not as big strategy for me to go forward and pick individual stocks because I've 
had a bad streak of picking individual stocks even before this. Interesting. Did you lose money when you did that? Yes. When I was stock picking, I'd say over five years ago, I've lost thousands and thousands just investing in biotech and even some tech stocks I thought I believed in, but they actually tanked. Trying options. I tried so many different things and I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to index it. And indexing was probably the best thing I did. Interesting. So the the money that you've got in your 401k, I mean, it's you've grown that pretty substantially in the last, what, six, seven years, call it? Correct. Yes. I started to work in 2014 and this would be my seventh year investing in 401k. Is that something that you've maxed out every year? Yes. 19500 every single year. And then my employer actually matched and put in about 30000 or so of that. So call it 165000 170000 that you've put in and your employer put in, and you've gotten 80000 or so in gain from that, correct? Yeah, that would be correct, actually. Yep. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. So do you plan going forward to continue to max out your 401k every year? Yes, absolutely. It's part of my strategy. I will definitely do that. So let's just play a little bit of math and just for the sake of it, because you're 27 right now. So let's just say you've got 40 years just just for kicks, 40 years of growth. Even if you didn't put anything in anymore, you know, let's just say it's a 250 right now. You don't put any more in. I mean, you're going to end up with anywhere between what, six and 20 some million dollars, depending on your rate of return over 40 years. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? Yeah, I calculated it one day and I was just mind blown. Like for me, thinking about that math and the compounding interest, it just went way beyond my head. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's crazy. Like I, you hear it all the time, right? The millionaires are made really in their 20s and 30s, not necessarily in their 50s and 60s, which we've actually debunked a couple of times on this show because we have had people that have done it, you know, in a decade. In your case, you've done it basically in what, seven years? I mean, what was your net worth when you started working in 2014? In 2014, it would be around negative 50000 I had student loans and a car. So, really, you've done it in seven years. So, one, it can be done. I mean, obviously, income makes a big factor and a bull market makes a, is, a, is a large factor as well. But, you know, the, the amount of money that you've put in, you know, 150000 call it 140000 with your employer contributions as well, even if you don't ever touch that again, it's going to be worth several million dollars when you retire. Does it make you think? Sec- I mean, does it make you second guess maybe continuing to max that out at all? It doesn't. And the reason is because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. If I were to get hit with, you know, some disease or something, or even the rest of my family in the future, I want to be adequately prepared, especially with aging parents, brothers around me, if they need help for any reason, I want to be in a position where I could take care of the entire family. Especially in my uh, culture, it's something where taking care of family is a big, important part. So even if the money's not for me, it's for the family around me too. I think about it that way. Gotcha. Does it bother you though? I mean, we, we ask this to a lot of our millionaires that are young, just given that that, that time horizon is so long and, and you have a lot of, you know, there's tax advantages and whatnot, but on one, one hand, it is somewhat locked up. Does it bother you that that money, even if you do continue putting it in there and investing, that it is untouchable essentially for, you know, 30, 40 years? Yeah, that part of it bothers me as well. I do feel like if I were to retire at like 45, then there's still a significant time horizon until 59 and a half. 
which is why I still have a hefty brokerage as well, and even some investments in real estate. I try to keep it, I, I think of it like 30%, 30%, 30% between the individual vehicles, so not everything's locked. Gotcha. So let's walk through that a little bit. In terms of your next dollar that comes in, in Jay's house, you're putting, hey, I'm putting a third in, into my retirement untouchable account until 59 and a half. I'm going to put a third of my dollar in the brokerage account, and then I'm going to put a third of it into to real estate. Is that how you basically break it down on you know a monthly, annual basis? That's what I try, yes. And when I look at my net worth allocation graph, it looks almost like a third evenly spread between real estate stocks and retirement. Interesting. So you've got a three-legged stool there, basically, just a little bit different than uh, than than the three-legged stool I personally deploy, but nonetheless, it's the same. So let's jump into to the the brokerage account. Do you plan on getting any more aggressive with that in the future, or is that plug and play? Put it in there, set it, forget it. It works much like a retirement account, but you have that liquidity right there if you need it. Yeah, absolutely. And the way I think about my brokerage is I'm invested in a lot more growth funds. I know that I'm not fully exposed to Tesla or NVIDIA, Microsoft or Apple, but knowing that I'm invested half of my brokerage in QQQ and even some exposure in ARKK, I know that I'm taking on additional risk there, just not as much risk as if I were to hold it outright. Gotcha. You don't want any GameStop in there, do you? Oh my gosh. I, <laughs> I've i held out. <laughs> I've been seeing DFV play it and that guy's insane, but I couldn't do that, man. Like after all the options and my bad times trading, I just sit on the sidelines and watch him profit. Yeah. 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 No, understandable. So you did mention you've got a little bit in crypto. Is that something that was just, hey, I'm going to dabble in it? Or do you really think crypto is going to be somewhat of the future and you will add that to, as part of your portfolio? The funny story with this Bitcoin thing, I actually invested in it back in 2017 when it was worth $10,000, I believe. Bitcoin shot up to 20000 and I believe that 4000 doubled to 9000 in that time frame. And then silly me, when it crashed, I put it in these crap coins, as the people call it, like XRP, which ultimately tanked even more. So that money should have been four times what it was at the 10000 mark, but it's still worth 4000 because I'm such a bad trader. That's an example of me doing my bad trading again. Interesting. I'm still holding a bet. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, hey, I mean, it's just a, it's a little bit of a gamble, right? And sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, and you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, right? That is true. And that's something that I've been absolutely terrible at, and that's why I consider myself an index investor now. Yeah, totally. So let's switch gears here a little bit. You mentioned you've got quite a bit in real estate what is your strategy with real estate and, and how have you gone about accumulating the, the the rentals that you do? Sure, absolutely. So I do have three rental units. I do have the two in Florida and I have one in Las Vegas, aside from my pri- primary residence here in Texas. The way I think about real estate is if I can have enough enough cash flow to cover my household expenses on a monthly basis, I'll be happy. My target with real estate is to ultimately try to cover my expenses when I'm retired early. And I'm trying to do this without touching my brokerage and other accounts. But how I'm going to play it is, if I need $5,000 a month in retirement, I want my real estate to cover $6,000. And then I'll supplement that with stocks if I have a month where I need more. 
And then when retirement kicks in, I'll be able to pull from retirement later on as well. Interesting. So walk us through, I mean, are you buying single families or, or duplexes or what's the strategy and, and what do you look for in a deal and how does a, a, you know, a deal take shape? Are you putting 20% down? What are you looking for? I mean, obviously you've got this long-term vision and plan for, for these to cover uh, early retirement potentially, and we'll get into that in a second. But what, what are you mm-hmm. looking for in these properties? Maybe just walk us through you know the first two that you did. Yeah, my target rate like cash on cash return is 15% per year on real estate. My duplex in Florida, that one, I put uh, 25% down and I have a 30-year loan on it. And I know that one does 17 or 18% cash on cash when I last calculated that one. But I'm a kind of person that can put minor repairs into a property, put 25% down, put it on a 30-year loan, and then let that sink in and just make more money. Now, I'm not like a like a buy rehab bird type of person. I'm trying to dabble in that, but I don't have the confidence yet in that. So my other property in Las Vegas, that one was near turnkey as well, like you know, minor repairs, paint and carpet. And then just put down the 25%. That one was actually on 15 years. But since I bought that so early, I was able to do a better cash and cash return on that. So do you have somebody manage these or how did you find these? Yes, absolutely. So the one in Las Vegas that was between a property manager and realtor that I identified, and then same in Florida. So I just reached out to a couple of people. If they met a certain criteria that I like, like the response rate and all these other things and whatever other experience they can come to the table with, I just side with them and then ultimately buy it through the realtor, pass it on to the property management, and then just hopefully collect the check until something like an AC breaks. Did you see any of these properties before you bought them? In person, no, actually. I trusted my realtor and my property manager to look over the properties and make sure that they're all well and good before I pull the trigger. So three opinions. I can't go wrong with three opinions, hopefully. Interesting. So, I mean, a lot of people say, hey, look, I'm on the coast. You know, I'm going to try to invest in the middle of the country, Texas being a good spot to do it. You being in Texas, why did you decide to, to go outside the state? Yeah, so I... Having lived in Texas for a while, I know how property taxes here are. And if I were to let someone rent it out, I understand that the appraisal is going to kill me year over year and my tax assessment is going to go up year over year to the point where I don't feel like the landlord that could impose such a high jump year over year on someone's rent price. And an example of this, and I even outlined this in one of my YouTube videos, is I took a property that I owned here in Texas. It was worth like 150000 when I bought it. But in the six years prior, it was worth probably 70000 right before the big boom. And for those that don't homestead the property, like if you're an investor, you cannot homestead it. So these caps on taxes year over year don't apply to you. But even if they did, having a 10% year over year increase in taxes and then passing that along to the renter is not very desirable compared to these other markets. The tax rate is really killer. And that's something that I've been advising a lot of people like Texas is a good appreciation play when you sell in a couple of years, but cash flow today and then having to turn over the next renter is something I wasn't willing to do. Interesting. So going forward, do you plan to, to come, you know, to build out portfolios in those markets or are you just going to go wherever the deal is? So I'm going to keep building out in Florida, Las Vegas. I've been stepping back a little bit. I might look into the Midwest a bit more. So between Midwest and Florida, that's where I'm looking next. You mentioned earlier about retiring early. 
is five grand the target for for these properties eventually to to cash flow for you? So my real target is actually ten thousand per month. If I could get ten thousand per month, I would be happy, or or so I tell myself because I always raise a target on myself. Totally, totally. So you get ten grand a month. Is that properties paid for? Do you plan on paying them off at some point, or or just continuing to build a portfolio? Is there a number amount of doors that you're trying to get to, or my target is at least $300 a month cash flow per property. And hopefully that will get me enough. Gotcha. So we've talked a little bit about the, the early retirement. For you, is that, is that a goal? I mean, I, I guess we haven't defined that. Is that a goal at some point to, to retire before the traditional retirement age? Yeah, I've been setting a goal for myself by 45. Okay, so 45. Now at, at 45... Let's just back into this and, and go through this exercise for our listeners. Are you targeting a certain level of cash flow or net worth or both at that at that age? Yes. So my followers know that I'm targeting a seven million net worth, and what I'm hoping is that will allow me a decent amount of cash flow at that point. Okay. So if we follow your third, third, and third, you're gonna have just over two million. Call it two point two, two point three. In each of the buckets, real estate, retirement accounts, and, and your brokerage account, do you plan on living completely off the real estate income or would you draw from the brokerage as well? I plan to live off of the real estate income entirely. And if I have to draw from the brokerage, I will do so. Okay. Going down that path, is there a different Maserati in the future? Yes. <laughs> I've been eyeing the Maserati Quattroporte Trofeo and the Levante Trofeo. I'd like to add both to my little collection as well as the MC20. Okay, so we got a big Maserati fan. Well, that a little portfolio for Maserati as well. <laughs> yep, awesome. My followers really know that as well. That's awesome, man. I love it. Is there anything else you like to splurge on? Yeah, actually, vacations are another big part of it as well. So, for example, I like to go on two big international trips per year. Right before COVID, I did a lot of that. And then just go domestically maybe five or 10 times to Hawaii or even just nearby areas. So I personally like to spend money on food and travel aside from cars. Yeah, totally. We'll get into this a little bit more in the, in the millionaire questions, but I want to ask as you've gone on this journey, has, has the number shifted as the intent shifted at all as you've gotten to that millionaire status or has it always been seven million forty five? Yeah. And I do talk about this as well. Like um once I hit a million dollars I started realizing, oh my gosh, me being twenty seven years old and looking at the white hairs on my head and even a little bit of balding, I'm thinking maybe I can slow down my path a little bit and my investments should be able to continue to grow. So that's where I started dabbling in the idea of Coast Fire. And just like you mentioned, with the portfolio growing over time, I was thinking maybe I can just let off the accelerator a bit. Maybe I can delay this next promotion because I think my salary is adequate to carry me going forward without killing me too early on and allowing me enough time to enjoy what I have going into retirement. Because if I retire at 45, but I'm extremely exhausted, then it's not worth it anymore. Yeah, totally. So... One thing we haven't discussed yet is primary residence. And you do own a home, you said? Yes, that's correct. What's your philosophy around owning versus, you know, renting possibly? And, and also with that, you know, do you do a 15-year, 30-year mortgage? Do you pay it off early? Do you not? What's kind of your philosophy around home ownership? Yeah. So around home ownership, 
I bought a house that was just under three times my annual income at the time that I bought it. Well, actually, yeah, about two times. And I like to keep my primary residence as low as possible because homeownership and repairs and everything gets really expensive. And what I did with this one is I did 20% down. And the monthly payment at the time was 1700 because my house was around 250000 The way I thought about it is I wanted to pay this down to a manageable level to where if I were to lose my job, knock on wood, I would be able to still pay for it with my business. So I ultimately put down close to 50% after all is said and done. So 20% initially, but then I put down the remaining or additional 30%. So my mortgage is paid off about halfway. And Meaning you made a lump sum payment? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did the lump sum payment and then I recasted the mortgage. So my monthly payment appears lower. And then I refinanced it because of COVID and everything. So I've taken advantage of the lower rates. And now my monthly payment is six fifty a month PNI. And then I just escrowed a taxes myself the additional like sixty six hundred or so. Wow. And did you put that on a thirty year or fifteen year? It's a thirty year. Yep. Now, so you got that on a thirty year payment six hundred fifty bucks plus taxes, insurance, whatever. Or I guess you said principal and interest is six fifty, and then you escrow the others to yourself. So. What do you plan to do in the future? Are you going to pay the rest off early or you just make the minimum, you know, $650 payment a month? No, I'm just going to be making the minimum payments because I feel like I can return much better than 3% elsewhere. What if I would... paid off early, locking up so much money. Yeah, no, good. I mean, that's, yeah, totally. That's a, that's a good point. It's something that we've been discussing, especially recently. So let's just play a, a game a little bit. What would that rate need to, I mean, obviously you're locked in for 30 years, but let's just say you hadn't. What would that rate in your mind need to be for you to want to pay that off earlier? Or would you ever, maybe even before retirement, get to that point or not? Right. Actually, I did consider this because before I bought this house that I'm living in now, the house that I would have bought was 370000 and the rate was 5.1. But right around the time I was about to close, it rose to like 5.4, I believe. So at that point, I actually would realize that 5.4% is a decent enough rate that I would want to pay it down faster. So for you, that rate is in the fives, basically. So if you had something in the fours, you'd still keep it? Yep. 4.375, I was still happy with that. And then when I refinanced down into the threes, I'm like, hands off. Yeah, totally. So... Don't plan on paying it off. Would there ever be, I mean, let's see, you're 27, so 57. Would you plan on paying it off, you know, say when you hit early retirement at 45 or would you continue to let that ride? I would continue to let that ride. I've thought about paying it off and what that mortgage would be at that time. And I was just thinking, if I feel like my monthly safety net or monthly income cannot cover the expenses at that time, I might consider throwing it at that, but holding the cash still more beneficial to me, or at least that's what I think. While we're on cash, what is your philosophy in terms of how much to hold in cash? You know, either waiting for a real estate deal or just in, in emergency savings. What's your kind of thoughts around having cash on hand and how much? Right. So my philosophy around that is six months of expenses at the very least. But for me, I'm also holding my real estate savings in that same account as well. So anything beyond six months, I'm saving that for my next purchase. And the reason why I chose six months is because cybersecurity is such a hot industry that 
people have been reaching out for job offers left and right, even through the pandemic. And I realized if I were need to need to jump, it wouldn't take much effort to jump within two to three months if I really needed to do that. Yeah, totally. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about kind of career management and, and what you've done. Maybe discuss why you went into cybersecurity. First of all, did you go to college at all? Yes, I did. Okay. Did you get a degree in, in business or cybersecurity or anything like that? Yeah, I got a degree in information systems. Okay. So not cybersecurity related, but I took cybersecurity related classes while in college. Gotcha. Okay. So you, you graduate college, information systems degree, uh, move into the field of cybersecurity. Walk us through that career progression from when you graduated to, to where you are now. Sure. So I, upon graduation, took an offer at a big four consulting firm. So PwC, Deloitte, EY, KPMG, along the nature of those firms. I started out as an entry-level associate making 65K a year and after bonuses around 70,000. After that, two years, got a promotion into senior associate and that's where I started making six figures. That's 100,000 a year flat. After that, I focused on getting the manager position. So another two years and I was able to make manager. And now I jumped out two years after that into a different role, still as a manager, but less working hours, but still more pay. Interesting. So really you stay, you've been with one company or two companies? So I've been with one company for six years and then I jumped out last year in the midst of the pandemic. Okay. Gotcha. So in terms of career management, maybe for our listeners, why cybersecurity and maybe just talk about the prospects of what that field looks like going into the next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. So cybersecurity is an ever-growing field and I personally have had such an immense interest in technology. So ever since I was young, I thought that I would become like a web developer or even like a programmer of mobile applications. And it wasn't until college that I learned about cybersecurity and that whole field as a whole. And I was so interested in the idea of like attacking different companies and you know breaking in, trying to take the different assets, capture the flag, defending secrets against people that would try to attack and pick them up. So that ultimately resonated with me, and I just kept digging and digging. And I found myself every night just seeing, okay, how do I hack Wi-Fi? How do I hack database? How do I hack MySpace? Whatever it was, I wanted to hack it. And eventually, I started participating in all these different competitions like Symantec. And over time, I was just thinking, this would be an awesome field center. And I feel like with the um with the shift towards technology and the importance of computers in day-to-day lives from small businesses to large businesses, this field will never go away unless someone decides we're going to get rid of all the computers, all mobile devices, anything connected to the internet. So looking at the prospects, I checked BLS.gov right around 2014 when I was entering cybersecurity field and I realized, wow, this path is going to explode. This career is going to explode. And Every single year when I attend a conference, one common thing that comes up nowadays is in cybersecurity, we don't have enough people. We never have enough people. In fact, there's actually a shortage of like two to four million professionals in the next five to 10 year time frame, which is absolutely mind boggling to think about because one, cybersecurity pays pretty well. And the more you stick with it, it pays extremely well, especially as you get into management and architecture. So to all the listeners out there, if you are thinking about programming, that's a really fine path. You could go with that. But if you like the idea of protecting, defending, attacking, enter cybersecurity. So there you have it, listeners. Cybersecurity. 
the future and beyond. All right, Jay, I want to get into some millionaire questions, some rapid-fire questions that we ask most, if not all, of our millionaires. So what's the most expensive pair of pants you've ever purchased? 30 bucks. What's the most expensive uh, pair of shoes you've purchased? 60. What's the uh, the most expensive car you've purchased? Probably the Maserati, right? No, actually, it was a Hyundai Genesis. 25. <laughs> Whoa. Tell us that story real quick. Yes. So in 2015, I actually bought the Hyundai Genesis because, of course, once you graduate college, you think, oh my gosh, I'm making such big money, 65000 a year. Money is flowing in left and right. I'm going to buy the biggest, baddest car out there. And at the time, I wanted a Mercedes S550 or a um, Audi A8. And I told my dad. And my dad was like, no, son, there's no way in heck you're going to be living in my house and driving an Audi A8, which costs like half the price of the house. And I said, no, it's like 20000 bucks. It's like, no problem. And then my dad said, the maintenance is going to kill you. So I looked into it, like airmatic suspension, turbochargers, all of that stuff, and having to rebuild them out of warranty. And I was thinking, I cannot afford that. I don't have a business to pay for that or anything. So I looked into the Hyundai Genesis. And when I drove it, I was like, my gosh, it drives like an E-Class and an S-Class. So similar. And the sound system was really darn good for the price as well. And that car served me well up until I bought the Maserati, actually. So I ended up keeping that car up until then. Interesting. Gotcha. So what's the uh, the most expensive meal that you've paid for, meal out that you've paid for? 200 200 so you're a foodie in 200 what what uh what's the restaurant of choice actually i think it was closer to 300 the japan exchange rate got me but <laughs> I ended up, yeah, I that's never happened to any of us traveling <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is i ate kobe beef and i thought it was great but me being the frugal guy that i am i was thinking it was more of an experience than actually enjoying the food which, unfortunately, that was the case for me, like softest beef in the world. But I could go to Hard Eight Barbecue in Texas any day and pay 30 bucks and be much happier than paying 200 or 300 at Kobe. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. As much as you're comfortable sharing, what's been the range of household income through your working life? Yep. So starting out, that's 70 my first year. I guess the year before that, you know, 30,000 when I started as a help desk engineer. My highest grossing income would have been last year, 225000 all in. Okay. What is the uh, household expenses? Last year, around $40,000, including wow. my travel and mortgage and everything. Wow. How much of that is travel? $5,000. <laughs> do you travel with points a lot? I do. So I do that hack that people do like you know to chase rewards and then cash out the miles and then buy a singapore airlines first class flight but even then the hotels and the food gets you especially if you're a foodie yeah, totally okay are there any books or products that you recommend that that uh, you like to use i love to read the blog financial samurai and through my college years and even afterwards i learned so much from that guy aside from that i don't read anything else yeah, we had Sam on the, the show a little while ago. Great episode. Okay, to just wrapping up, what would you advise, you know, somebody who's just getting started on their journey to, to becoming a millionaire and financially independent? Yeah, my personal advice is to keep your expenses as low as you can to the point where you're still happy with your life. Like for me, 40000 a year is absolutely perfect. But then again, I live in a low cost of living city as well with low expenses. So low expenses and then investing as much as you can. So like my savings right now is probably around 50 to 60% after taxes and 401k. 
And I've just been trying to grow that over time. Bonuses and stuff like that go straight in there. And then once a year or even twice a year, I like to splurge on myself a little bit. If it's something that makes you happy, right? Like last year, I bought my dream car. But before that, I went traveling a lot and I ate a lot of good food. And that made me happy and kept me up all the time. So on the journey, the journey can get mundane and boring and tiring because you're just chasing the next dollar. And I feel like you have to treat yourself over time. It's important. Even if it's a small budget of 100 or $200, it's like a pick-me-up. It's something where you get to look forward to it and be happy with that. And that can keep you motivated until the next goal. Sometimes I wonder how some people can go so long without treating themselves or if they ever burn out. But for me, I do. And I'm still human. So I do that to myself. Aside from that, read up on a lot of different blogs that suit you. Some people like the minimalist lifestyle, like the money mustache guy. Some people like the Dave Ramsey principles. Sometimes you have to tweak some of those principles to suit what you do and your needs. So not not everything is like a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter solution, but you can tailor it to your needs and you can build that plan to suit you. And of course, meet it on your own timeline. Like I tell people a lot, set your own goals year over year and then just do it on your own schedule. Don't follow somebody else's schedule. Like I know someone that became a millionaire at age 22 and 23 working in tech. And I'm not that person. So, of course, there's going to be people better than you. There's going to be people worse than you. You just have to follow it on your own schedule and just set your own goals and beat those goals. Totally. Where can people uh, find you or get a hold of you or, or find ma- find out more about you? I'm at Instagram.com. Just look for Jay Millennial. Okay. Once again, that's Jay with a net worth of just over a million dollars. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.